Father, we just come to you today and as we embark on a new study and a new book, uh, this book of 2 Peter, Lord, uh, just, just bless our study as we look at this trustworthy prophetic word. Uh, Peter was living in a time, Lord, you know this, when, when there were a lot of false teachers just like there are today. And, and uh, he brings forth this great word about uh, the gospel and, uh, and about uh, Jesus Christ, our Savior, Lord. We just thank you for, for who you are and, and uh, just this great word that we'll see here. And, and Lord, also this prophetic word that we'll see about the end times that you'll show us toward the end of, end of this book. So, Lord, there's just a lot of theological gems here, just precious jewels, Lord, uh, as, as today we'll be talking about our precious faith. So I just ask that you just open our minds and hearts to this study. It's a very encouraging book, Lord, and I look forward to it. And, and I look forward to you blessing us by the power of your Holy Spirit. So I just ask you to do that today. We ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. A few years back, uh, a neighbor was over at my house and we were watching a special on Fox News called, I don't know why we were watching that, but anyway, we were watching it, uh, a special called Terra, uh, Islam, Terra, and the Arab Media. But what stood out in that special, they actually had footage that the Taliban had filmed of a suicide bomber coming into an American convoy and blowing himself up and killing several of our troops. And this was on Al Jazeera. And these guys were, these Taliban were up on this hill and they were filming this event and they were yelling, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar. And, uh, then they begin to talk about, on this footage, about this man's destiny in heaven, in paradise, and how he would have 70 virgins for killing all of these Americans. And my neighbor said something that, that kind of struck me strange. Uh, I don't think he thought it was strange. But he said, that's the difference between our religion and theirs. And I said... How's that? He said, well, they believe you get to heaven by committing suicide or becoming a martyr. And we believe you get to heaven by your good works. Now, hopefully you caught that. And I said, no. <laughs> I said, speak for yourself. <laughs> I don't believe we get to heaven by our good works. I believe there's only one way we get to heaven, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. It's by the blood of Jesus Christ that we're made righteous enough to ever get to heaven. Well, my friend answered that comment by saying, well, I believe in Jesus Christ too, and I believe that... that uh, He's the son of God. And I believe that, that uh, he died for our sins on a cross. But I believe he wants us to do good works. And if we don't do good works, we're not going to get to heaven. He says, didn't James say faith without works is dead? I said, yes, faith without works is dead. But faith does not save us. I mean, works do not save us. It's our faith that saves us. Faith produces works. But faith. But, but works do not save you. They are never going to save you. And I believe there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians who believe exactly like my neighbor believes. They say they have faith. And they do believe in the facts about Jesus Christ. But they really never put their faith in him for their salvation. Instead, they're relying on their religion or they're relying on their good works uh, to get them in heaven. So they really don't have real faith. The kind of faith that Peter's going to talk about today in 2 Peter when he talks about our precious faith. Now, if there's anybody who could have get, gotten to heaven by his good works, it was Peter. Actually, I could reverse that. I could say if anybody couldn't, could have gotten to hell by their bad works, it was Peter too. 
Because Peter did, a, he bumbled a lot, didn't he? he? He fumbled around and made a mess of things several times. But you got to stop and think about Peter. Peter did a lot of things. First of all, he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was one of the 12 apostles. It puts him up there pretty high, doesn't it? Uh, he walked and talked with Jesus for three years. I mean, remember when Jesus called him, he dropped everything he was doing. He left everything he had. He left his family. He left his business. And he loved fishing. And he left his fishing to go and follow Jesus. He became a pastor, as we saw in 1 Peter, to the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, he wrote these epistles that we're looking at. He healed the sick. I mean, he died for his faith. You realize that Peter was crucified upside down for his faith? So if anybody could have gotten to heaven by their works, Peter could have done that. That's why there are a lot of people who see Peter as the cornerstone of the church. They believe that he is the first pope of the Roman Catholic Church. They believe that he is the, was the leader, the first great leader, and then there was a succession of leaders after him who would take his place, the vicar of, vicars of Christ. But Peter denies that role. Peter never accepts that role. And, and Peter understood that it was only one thing that qualified him uh, for heaven, that qualified him to be in a relationship with God, and that was his faith, his precious faith, as he calls it uh, in Second in Peter here today. He saw his faith as the most important thing that he possessed, and that's what we're going to see as we look in Second Peter. But before we get to Second Peter, let's... Let's do a little bit of an introduction on the book. And, and I don't do many introductions on books, at least not any detailed introduction, because, because I, I come to a book, I accept it for what it is, and I, and I just go on. I see it as the Word of God, and if it says in, in verse number one that Simon Peter wrote the book, I assume that Simon Peter wrote the book, and I don't doubt that. And I believe by the Spirit of God, when you study a book by the Spirit of God, you, you, the Spirit attests to you that Simon Peter wrote this. But I have to mention this because if, if you do any secular reading or any kind of study of outside sources on, the, on 2 Peter, you look to the higher critic. 2 Peter is the most criticized, uh, actually its authenticity is the most criticized of all the books in the Bible. There are very few scholars who believe Peter wrote 2 Peter. And, and a lot of conservative scholars don't believe that Peter wrote 2 Peter. They would tell you that um, uh, this anonymous writer who had this great theo theological message that he wanted to give out to the world, maybe sometimes in maybe the early third century, that he wanted to give this message out. And, and so... Uh, he, wasn't, he, he was living in mediocrity and he realized that the message probably wouldn't be received. So he gave credit to his writing to Simon Peter so that it would become part of the canon. And that's the way a lot of scholars see that. And, and uh, they see that for two reasons. And this is a reason whenever you, the authorship of a, uh, a book is doubted, it's usually because of the Greek. People look at the Greek and they say the Greek is different. They say, scholars say, and you can judge this for yourself, that the words that were used in 1 Peter are a lot different from the words that were used in 2 Peter. But you know what? I don't buy that argument because if I write a letter, if I write some type of work, I use different words when I write sometimes. And you can throw that argument out because there are a lot of words that are used. In fact, that word precious that we're going to talk about today is used over and over again in both 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Now, word precious is kind of an unusual word that, that Peter, I think, took on upon himself to describe the things of faith. And so I don't buy that argument. Another reason you could shoot down that argument, if you remember at the end of 1 Peter, 
Peter speaks, acknowledges a guy named Sylvanius. And remember he said Sylvanius is the one who wrote down this letter for me. He's what scholars call an amanuensis. So you would expect the Greek to be a little bit different because this Greek in 2 Peter is more simple and the Greek in 1 Peter is more complicated. And so if you had someone, a Greek, writing it down for a Hebrew, then he would probably use better Greek than Peter used in 2 Peter. Is that making any sense? Now, the other, the other argument that they use is that most of the so-called church fathers in the 2nd and 3rd and 4th century do not mention or do not quote from 2 Peter. And they quote from the other books, but they don't quote from 2 Peter. But that argument is shot down too because two of the most famous of the so-called church fathers, Origen and Clement of Alexander, both write from 2 Peter. So you can throw all of that stuff out. I mean, here's the way I look at it. Read verse number one. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. The internal evidence in this book screams out that Peter wrote this book. Peter, in, in later on in the first chapter, will mention how he saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let me ask you, how many apostles saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Three. Peter, James, and John. That was it. How many Peters saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? One. He's the only one who saw it. So if you say that Peter didn't write this book, you understand what you're saying. And when I hear conservative scholars Take, make that argument, man, I want to throw up. Because when you make that argument, what you're saying is, you're saying God endorsed a fraud. God inspired a fraud. Is God going to inspire a fraudulent book? No, he's not going to do that. This book and all of these books were written under the inspiration of God. If you are a born-again believer, when you come to First and Second Peter, you don't question who wrote it. The title tells you who wrote it. Peter wrote it. So you don't have any problem with it at all. But that kind of leads us to the purpose of the book. Why did Peter write second, this second epistle? Well, he was actually writing it to refute frauds. I mean, he was actually writing to those people who were writing fraudulent writings and, and teaching fraudulent things. They were lying or twisting the truth. And so I've entitled this series... A trustworthy, a, a trustworthy prophetic word. That's what we get here. I mean, what Peter's going to try to do in a very simple form, and that's why I like the, both the epistles of Peter, he's going to try to drive home to us the essentials of our faith, the essentials of our gospel, and the essentials of our future. That's what he's going to drive home in a very simple way. As for the date of this book, it's pretty easy to figure out the date of this book because Peter speaks of the fact in, in, in verse 14, I believe it is, that shortly I must put off my tent. When he says that, what's he saying? I'm going to die soon. He had a premonition that he was about to die. I don't know if his health was bad but, or if he understood that this persecution of Nero was getting really bad and that there had been a warrant out for his arrest. I think maybe he understood that. And he understood that he was about to die. So it was shortly before his death. But there's something else interesting in this book that we get. Over towards the end of the book, we're told that Peter mentions Paul in kind of a funny way. He says, man, that Paul, you need to read his writings, but they're really complicated. You know, it's really some deep theology. I don't know I wanna, if I can even explain it. We understand that from studying the epistles of Paul, don't we? But apparently he mentions Paul in the, in the sense that Paul was still alive. He didn't say anything about him being dead. So we know that the book was written shortly before Peter's death and before Paul's death, probably during the persecution of Nero, somewhere around, somewhere between 60 and 65 A.D. We know that. So most scholars date this book around 62 A.D. Now, let me just say this. You're in for a treat if you stick, go through this book. This has got some... I, I, I don't know how best to describe it. You could call it theological gems, or you could call it theological bombshells, however you want to look at it. There are some just very, very uh, wonderful theological precepts wrapped up in this little package for us. 
And, and they come at us one after the other. And so there's some really deep stuff. It, the book is only three chapters, I believe. And, and, but it's just full of very important stuff that, that Peter wanted to, to give us in this trustworthy prophetic word. So let's begin. Let's begin in the book and let's book, look down at uh, verse number one. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness, how did he get it? By the righteousness of God, our God, our God, notice it, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing that Peter does, he gives us his credentials. He says, Simon Peter, a bond servant. Here's what I want you to notice. First of all, what he didn't say about himself. He, does, he doesn't say to himself, uh, Peter, the vicar of Christ, does he? He doesn't say to himself, Peter, the head of the church. He doesn't say about himself, Peter, the first pope. He doesn't say any of those things. Now, don't you think if he was living in Rome and he was the vicar of Christ, he would have at least mentioned it. I mean, if he was the the head of the church, don't you think he would have at least mentioned it? Nowhere in Acts, nowhere in the epistles do we see Peter mentioned as the Pope. And if you're a Roman Catholic here today, today, I'm not trying to put your faith down, but I'm trying to show you that the Bible nowhere indicates that Christ appointed some kind of Pope, some kind of vicar of Christ. On the contrary, On the contrary, look at what Peter calls himself. He calls himself a bond servant, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. You know what a bond servant is? A slave. He he put himself in the class of slave, not as the class of the head of the church with all sorts of pretty garb and stuff. He put himself in the class of a slave. Now, Don't get me wrong, Peter was a pretty important person, and if he wanted to brag about himself, he could have. And he does in in just a little way, he says, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, he was an apostle, but he was a slave. He was an apostle, one of the 12 that Jesus had appointed to be that front line in the initial assault uh, of, of the gospel, to take the gospel out into the world. But he did, he, notice he didn't see himself as better than any other believer. Look at the last part of that verse. He addresses those in the church as obtaining a, what does he say? A like precious faith. You understand what he's saying? He's saying, your faith is the same as my faith. We're, and, and how do we get that faith? Because we're perfected by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. Can one Christian be better than the other if one Christian, all Christians, have the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Look, you cannot get better than the righteousness of God. And Peter saw that. He said, yeah, I'm an apostle, but I'm also a bondservant just like you. Because I've attained the same faith that you've attained. That puts us all on the same plane, but it puts us on a very high plane. Don't get me wrong, on a heavenly plane. Because we all have received the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Man, that's pretty good news. You understand what you've been given? You've been given the righteousness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, he's talking about the same person there. Our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not talking about two persons of the Trinity here. He's talking about Jesus, our God and Savior. That's who he's talking about. And you have the same faith. Think about that. You've obtained the same faith, the precious faith, as the great apostle Peter had, as the great apostle Paul had, John had. Now think about that. What did Peter do with that faith? Remember he walked on water? Go out and try it. You don't, you've got that faith. 
Now you need Jesus to tell you to come forth for, before you do that or you're going to sink, I can tell you right now. I mean, Peter walked on water. He saw Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. Have you ever seen Jesus transfigured? I bet you have in your heart. I bet you've seen his glory in your heart, the transfigured Lord in your heart. He lives in you. I mean, think about Peter. Peter walked into the temple one day at the beautiful gate, and there was this lame man begging for alms. And by faith, Peter told that man, stand up and walk. Pick up your bed and walk. And the man got up and he walked. You've obtained like faith. You've got the same faith that Peter's got. You know, that, that's what really bothers me today about the church and where we're at. Because we have the same faith. And yet we're not seeing these kind of things happen in our life. And I, and I got to wonder why. You know, because that same faith that was available to Peter, we've obtained that same faith. Now let me ask you a question. Did Peter deserve that faith that he obtained? Do you deserve that faith that you've obtained? No. How do we get that faith? How, where do we get our faith? It's a gift. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9? He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that faith that you've been given is not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I mean, that faith, if you have faith, real faith, you didn't earn that faith. You didn't deserve that faith. That faith was given to you. But we've obtained that precious faith. Not through works. I mean, our salvation, our Christian lives, our ministries, our families, our jobs, our sanctification, our glorification are all of grace. They've been given to us by faith, by the faith that's been given to us. It's all a gift. Whatever we have, it's a gift. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. It's all a gift. I don't care what you're doing for the Lord right now. If you're doing it, something for the Lord, it's a gift. It's been given to you. Your ministry's been given to you. And as I've said over and over again, if you don't know what your ministry is, it's not in this pulpit probably. If it is, you can have it. I mean, if you want it really bad, but go to seminary for nine years and then you come up here, you can have it. But, but your, whatever your ministry is, find your ministry. God's given you the faith, and he's given you the ministry. It might be in your home. It might be in your job. It might be in your neighborhood. It might be in politics. You know, maybe not, but it might be. <laughs> I wish it were, you know. You don't know where it's at. But God, I mean, you should know where it's at because God has a ministry for you. Now, here's what I want you to look at for a minute. Take note of the adjective that Peter uses here to describe our faith. Well, how, well, how does he describe our faith? He uses that word that he loves to use. What is it? Precious. Precious, Precious faith. And that's definitely one of his favorite words. He used it on several occasions in the first epistle. Three times Peter referred to Jesus Christ, our cornerstone, as precious. You know what? I don't know about you. But there's not many things, or if anything, or there's not anything more precious than the Lord himself. He's precious. I, I, he, in First Peter talked about people with a gentle and quiet spirit. That's not me. But those kind of people, if you're one of those, they're precious to the Lord. You know, you're special to the Lord. You're very special if you're if you've got a quiet and gentle spirit, you'll have that one day if you don't have it yet. God's been working on me, and if you don't have it, he's working on you too because you're precious too. We're all precious in his sight to him, and, and, and all of us with these kind of rebellious, uh, harsh spirits, he works on those all the time, and we're gonna have, one day we're going to have gentle and quiet spirits. In, in verse 4 of chapter 2, look at what he, he says. He calls 
our, the promises that God has given us, what? Precious promises. Precious promises. And then in this verse, he speaks of our most precious faith. In 1 Peter, he talked about our faith is more precious than gold. What, what did precious mean to Peter? It meant the things of utmost importance in our lives. That's what precious is. What's precious to you? The thing, what's the most precious thing to you? The thing you, in, you see as the most valuable thing in your life. And it should be our faith. Because it's our faith that saves us. It's our faith that sustains us through life. It's our faith that removes those obstacles that get in our way. You know, those mountains that get in our way. It's by faith that those things are moved as we move on through life. And, and the most important thing about our faith, and I've said this over and over again, is not the quantity of faith you have. It's the quality of faith you have. And our faith is of utmost quality. Because our, the object of our faith is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And our faith is precious. It is precious. It is the most valuable thing you possess. Now, you might not see it that way. Most of y'all are younger than me, and there was a time in my, well, that's not funny. There was a time in my life, <laughs> there was a time in my life when I didn't, even as a Christian, I didn't see my faith as my greatest possession. I remember years ago, there was, I had a setback in my ministry, and a really tough, harsh thing happened. A really tough setback. And I was pretty distraught and ready to give up. And I had a guy, a friend of mine, come up to me. He had heard about the situation. He understood the situation. I almost saw this guy as a prophet. And he came up to me and he said, you know, don't be so down. He said, you still have the most valuable thing in your life. And I said, what's that? And he said, your faith. Your faith. And I said, well, great. <laughs> That's going to do me a lot of good today, my faith. You know, faith, faith. Yeah, I got to believe you're telling me. You know, faith. But I got to tell you this, after 27 years of being a Christian, I am sure of this one thing, that my faith is my most valuable possession. My faith in Jesus Christ, I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. Well, wait a minute, Pastor, you mean your faith is more valuable to you than your children, than your wife? then your ministry, then your church, you better believe it is. Because my relationship with my wife and my children is what it is because of my faith. My ministry is what it is. It's nothing without faith. My, my, this church is nothing without faith. I mean, if we don't have faith, we're the most pitiful of creatures. We're wasting our time here. You know, I heard, a, I heard Vance Abner say this week. He, he said, you know, I never could figure out why people come on Sunday and listen to us. You know, why do you guys gather here to listen to, this, to what I got, I'm saying here today? I know I'm good looking, but that's not the reason you come. Y'all quit laughing. No, you don't come to see me. You come because you have faith. You have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you want to hear from him. That's why you come here every Sunday and listen to this stuff for an hour because you have faith. You have faith that Peter wrote this book. You have faith that what he says here is true. And, and all we're doing is exegeting, exegeting the truth of God to edify us by faith. You believe that this makes you stronger, that this, this, this makes you a... 
a better Christian, that this builds you up in Jesus Christ. That's why you come here. You believe By faith, you believe this word encourages you. By faith, you believe that this word gives you the power to get through the next week. That's why you show up on Sunday. It's faith. Then look at verse number two. I love the, what he does here. And all of you, we got a couple of math teachers in here. You're going to love this part. He says, grace and peace be added to you. That's not what my text says. And if you, and if you got one of those nearly inspired versions, <laughs> if it says added, get rid of it. I don't even know what the nearly inspired version says, but, but whatever. What's the right version say? Multiplied. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but my understanding is this. The things happen a lot faster when you multiply than when you add. You can add two, you can multiply two times a hundred and you get two, what is it, 200 or 300? No, you, you get 200, you get 200, but start adding the twos up a hundred times. It takes a long, long time to get there, doesn't it? I mean, Listen to what he says. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now let me ask you a question here. You can raise your hand on this one. And you need to raise, the, the, the answer is to raise your hand. Yeah, you can go ahead and raise it. How many of you want as much grace and peace as you possibly can get? Amen, Right? Well, Peter tells us how right here in verse number two. Grace and peace not just be added unto you, be multiplied unto you. How? Look at the last part of that verse. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. You, you lack in grace? You lack in peace? Then you need more knowledge of our God and Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what you need. I mean, the more and more you grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the more and more grace and peace is multiplied unto you. That's faith. Faith, you've got to believe that by faith. Now, who is the God he's speaking of here? Because he says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, well, go back to the Verse number one, the last part, because he's talking about our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's who he's referring to here. It's your, we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And when we do, our peace and grace are multiplied. When your faith, when you grow in your faith of your precious faith in our precious Savior, who is the object of our faith, then your grace and peace are going to be multiplied. Now, we've got to talk about this word knowledge here for a minute. And I, we've talked about it before, and, and, and I'm sure you, you remember, but let, let's go over it again. The word knowledge here refers to much more than just an accumulation of facts. See, that was the problem my neighbor had. He understood the facts about Jesus Christ. But I don't believe for a minute that he under, was, had knowledge of Jesus Christ, the kind of knowledge that's being spoken of here. The knowledge that's being spoken of here is the knowledge that you have of someone that's dear to you, someone you're in a relationship with. So, so it's not just an accumulation of facts. It's being in a relationship with the Lord uh, and that's the way you get that knowledge. Look, I believe, again, there are a lot of people in the world who have knowledge about Jesus Christ, but they don't know Jesus Christ. They are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. They might even fear him as God. I know people who believe Jesus is God, he's the judge, uh, and one day he's going to judge their evil deeds, and so they try to live a pretty moral life. But yet they still don't know him. Wednesday night when we were in the book of Ecclesiastes over in chapter 8, Solomon said something very 
telling. He said the wicked perish because they don't fear. He added a word there. Before God. He didn't just say because they don't fear God. He says because they don't fear before God. There there are wicked people who fear God, but they don't fear before him. In other words, they aren't living before him in a relationship. To be saved, to have precious faith, if you have precious faith, you're going to be living in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're going to know him and he's going to know you. And if you and, and I don't care how much you understand the facts, if you're not in a relationship, you're not living before God, you're not fearing before God, and you're destined for hell. And I'm afraid there's a lot of people, and I'm not talking about here in this church, but a lot of people in the so-called church that are in that very boat. And that's why Jesus gave that very terrible warning over in Matthew chapter 7. You remember what he said? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? I mean, we were preachers, Lord. We cast out demons in your name. We've done wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, depart from me, for I never knew, knew, knew. I never knew you. Now, Jesus knows everybody. But he's talking about knowing them in a relationship. He knows who everybody is. He knows where everybody's at. He's omniscient. He knows everything. But he never knew them. He knocked. And he knocked. And he knocked. And they never answered that door and really invited him in. Isn't that the picture of the Laodicean church? And really, I think that's a picture of much of the church today. He's knocking, he's knocking, he's knocking. But there's no relationship. Friends, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're as lost as that suicide bomber. You're just as lost, and your chances to get to heaven are just as good as his. Zilch. Zero. So, how do we get to know Jesus? Well, you know how. It does take knowing the facts about Jesus. That's where it begins. You got to know the facts, Jack. You got to know the facts. We know that he was born in Bethlehem, Emmanuel, God with us. He grew up to die on a cross for our sins. On the third day, he was raised from the dead, and thereafter, he ascended unto heaven and he sits at the right hand of glory. Those are the facts. But you got to put your faith in those facts in order to go enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And too many people who call themselves Christians have deceived themselves and their faith is still in their own goodness and not in the goodness of Jesus Christ. What did Peter say in verse number one? He says, he says to those who have attained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Until you see yourself as unworthy and unrighteous in need of a Savior. I don't care what you believe about Jesus. You can believe all the true facts about Jesus Christ. You will not be born again, and you must be born again in order to get to heaven. And when you're born again, you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and not until you're born again. In Hebrews chapter 11, you remember a verse we looked at. You don't have to turn there. Let me read it for you. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. He doesn't say without knowledge of facts, it's impossible to please God. Without faith in those facts, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to him in a relationship, if you come to him in a relationship, you have to believe that he is. What does it mean to believe that Jesus is? You got to believe that he's real. That he really is the judge of all things. That he really does sit at the right hand of glory. That he really does desire to come and live in your heart. And you've got to believe that. You've got to really believe that you're a sinner and that you, you need salvation and that you need his blood to cover you of all your unrighteousness and clean you, cleanse you of all of your unrighteousness. You've got to really believe that he is, that he's there when you pray. You've got to believe that you're in a relationship with him. You've got to believe that he's in your heart. You've got to believe that he will never leave you or forsake you. And when you believe that, 
He is a rewarder. He multiplies grace and peace to those who diligently seek him. You know what the big test of whether you're truly a born-again believer is do you really diligently seek him? Friends, I'm going to tell you right now, if you're, you're putting your faith in something else, if you're seeking something else, I, I question where you're at. You, had, you didn't get some kind of ticket. People don't get tickets to heaven and then just go about their lives and do nothing. If you're in a relationship with the Lord, then you're diligently seeking him. If you're not diligently seeking him, let me explain to you where you're at. You're still in your pride. Because i got to tell you something. I can't go through a day without diligently seeking him. I tried that in Italy. Trust me. And I didn't get as far as the airplane before I'd lost my bag. A stewardess had my bag and I had her bag with all our tickets and everything. Because I got up and it was early and I didn't have time to pray. Because I was proud enough I could get to Italy on my own. I wasn't going to make it without the Lord. You can't make it anywhere without the Lord. If you're a child of God, good luck trying. But if, if you're not diligently seek, seeking the Lord, don't you understand what I'm trying to say to you right here? You're still in your pride. You still believe you can handle all these things on your own. And he'll break you of that if you're his child. If he doesn't break you of that, I feel for you. I feel for you. You need to check out your relationship with the Lord. And when you do diligently seek him, when you grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, grace and peace are not added to you. They're multiplied to you. And any believer that I know who is truly born again, who doesn't have, not, who is not experiencing the grace and peace of Jesus Christ, I know the reason. They don't want to hear it. They come to me and ask me, man, why is this happening? Why am I not experiencing grace? Why don't I have any peace? Because you're not diligently seeking the Lord. That's why. You can put it right there, and, and that is pride. And God hates pride. Probably the best analogy in the Bible, or maybe for me, the best analogy of the, in the Bible of this precious faith that he talks about is found over in, in uh, Luke chapter 7. Flip with me there for a minute. One last, we'll close with this story. You remember the story of the centurion's servant. Over in Luke chapter 7, look down at verse number 1. We'll look at a few verses here. It says, now when Jesus had concluded, I'm in Luke chapter 7, verse 1. Now when Jesus concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant was dear to him, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent that Jesus was there. He sent elders to the, of the Jews. Now, who does he send? He sends the most important people that he knew in that area. Now, this guy understood some things. We're going to see that in a minute. But they were the most important religious people that he knew. So he sends them to Jesus, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. Then in num verse number four, and when they had come to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this for the centurion, watch this, was deserving. Doesn't that sound just like a religious Jew or religious person? In other words, this centurion deserves your help. I mean, even though he's a Jew, I mean, even though uh, uh, he's... I mean, even though he's a Gentile and not a Jew, even though he's a Roman centurion, part of this army that's oppressing us, he deserves your help. Now, why did he deserve 
Jesus' help. Look at verse number five. Here's the reason. For he loves Rome. No, for he loves our nation. He loves Israel and has built a synagogue. So, hey, this guy was deserving he's, because he was a good person in their eyes. Uh, he, he loved Israel. I mean, you got to be a Christian if you love Israel, right? I mean, certainly you got to be a Christian if you love Israel. I mean, look at the good deeds he did, they said. I mean, and he's got to be religious because he didn't just build us a bridge or a nice road. He built us a synagogue. So not only does this guy have national pride in Israel and does good works, he's a very religious man. He deserves your help, Jesus. Now, let's see how the Roman looked at it. And it says, then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should even set foot under my roof. Wow. Totally different attitude than from the Jews, wasn't it? Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, to even talk to you. But I know that if you say the word, my servant will be healed. For I am a man in power, I having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to the other, come. And, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And so I know you have that same sort of power in the spiritual realm. Now, three things, three things that make you know that this man had great faith. Three things. First of all, what does he call Jesus when he addresses Jesus? Lord. Lord, can you imagine? Do you understand what would have happened to a Roman centurion if his superiors had heard that he had called anybody other than Caesar Lord? They would have executed him. But he calls Jesus Lord. Why did he call him Lord? Well, I believe he had, he had, he had seen or heard about Jesus' miracles and his work. He had probably heard him speak at some point. And so he recognized him as the Son of God. And he calls him Lord. Now, the second thing that you see here that, that makes you sure that this man has faith, precious faith, look at what he says, for I am not worthy that you should enter my house. In other words, he saw himself as unworthy in the eyes of the Lord. He saw his own depravity. He saw the holiness of Jesus Christ. And he understood that he, he didn't even deserve to have Jesus Christ step into his home. He was so unworthy. The same thing, remember, that John the Baptist said or something similar. John the Baptist says, you know, I'm unworthy to even latch, tie his sandals. And so he sees this on unworthiness and here's the third thing he believed he believed that's why you know he had real faith he believed he says you say the word and my servant will be healed man i gotta tell you what that is faith he really believed that jesus was god and that he had power over the spiritual world and that he could heal his servant he had to believe that he was God. And what was Jesus' response? Look at verse number 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And he turned around and he said to the crowd, listen to me. You Jews, you got it all wrong. Nobody deserves salvation. Nobody deserves to be healed of their illnesses, or of this illness of the soul. Nobody deserves that. And he turned to the crowd and they followed him and he said, I say to you, I have not found such great, such precious faith, not even in Israel. What is, the great, what is great faith? Great faith is faith that multiplies grace and peace. Did the Centurion receive any grace that day? Look at verse number 10. And those who were sent returning to the house found that the servant, the servant, found the servant well who had been sick. 
You know why the centurion's servant was healed? Because of his, because of the centurion's faith. But not, I don't believe it, it was just the centurion's servant's body that was healed. I believe that the centurion's soul was healed. And I believe that grace and peace were multiplied throughout his life. And do you know, want to know what the end of the equation was? It was multiplied and multiplied and multiplied until one day he arrived in glory with the Lord. One day, if you make it there, if you've got real faith, I'll bet you'll see that centurion in glory. But he didn't get there because he deserved it. You won't make it there because you deserve it either. You won't make it there because you're an American. You won't make it there, especially because you're an American. You won't, you used to could say that, you know, and everybody said, oh, America's not going to make it there? Now, man, are any Americans going to make it there? But you won't make it there because you love Israel. I mean, I, there's, a, there's some preachers out there that are teaching, man, you, if you love Israel and you keep the Ten Commandments, you'll, you're going to make it to heaven. I'm not going to name any names. I'll give you the initials if you want them, but I won't even do that today. Because you deserve it. If you love Israel, you deserve it. You do good works, do good things, do religious things, you'll make it. You won't make it there because you're religious. You won't make it there because you come to Calvary Chapel. You won't make it there because, because you do good things. You'll only make it there through faith. And that's why your faith is so precious to you. Friends, it's your faith that saves you. It's your faith that gives you the power to live victoriously in this life we live now. Thank God for precious faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do just thank you for our faith. We know that it is a gift from you. None of us have deserved it. Not even the centurion deserved the faith he had. You gave him that faith, Lord. Lord, I, I just, just ask if there's anybody here today who's relying on their works, who's not in a real relationship with you, that they are convicted today that that's what it takes to truly be born again. That's a commitment, Lord, but, but it's a gift that comes through faith. And so I ask you give them that gift today so that, Lord, one day we'll all be up there together with you and with the centurion and and rejoicing in glory. We just thank you for all the promises that we have as a result of the precious faith that you've given us through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.